you're familiar with the structure of Colossians, we're coming now to uh, the more practical section of the book. The uh, first couple of chapters have been been very doctrinal, kind of laying uh, laying some doctrinal foundations, and and now here uh, in chapter three, and to a lesser extent in chapter four, uh, there's some uh, some direct commands and applications to the lives of these Christians. And so tonight we're in uh, verses 5 through 7. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Now, uh, Paul, as we've been seeing here in Colossians, has just spoken to these Christians of the fact uh, that they have died, right? Verse 20 in chapter 2, if you have died with Christ. And he has spoken, as we've seen, of of them as being raised up with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 1 and he spoken to them of their lives being hidden with Christ in God, and now he proceeds to instruct them as to how they should live. He had told them to seek the things above, up in uh, chapter 3, verse, uh, uh, verse 1 and uh, verse 2, that they were to set their minds on the things above, and now he shows them in part how to do that, how to seek the things above. Above, Now we see at the outset that he connects what he's about to say here with that which has come before. That word therefore shows us that there's a, there's a connecting link. In other words, in light of the fact that you must set your mind on the things above, in light of the fact that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ, in light of the fact that when Christ is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory, in light of all of those things, This is what you should do. I think the the King James rendering of the opening portion of verse 5 is a helpful translation when it says, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. To mortify, of course, is to kill or to put to death. And this is what must be done to our members which are upon the earth. And Paul can speak of our sins as members because... Our old nature or our sinful corruption is sometimes referred to as a body. And so in Romans 6.6, 6, he says that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Likewise, Romans 7.24, he says, who will set me free from the body of this death? The entire old man, the entire corrupt nature is referred to as a body, and therefore the individual sins pertaining to that corrupt nature are called its members, here referred to as the members of your earthly body or the members, your members, which are upon the earth. And so even as Christians, as those who have died with Christ and have been raised up with him, we still have sinful members which must be killed. And this might at first seem a little bit paradoxical, right? We have died, we've been crucified with Christ, to use Paul's language from Galatians, but yet 
We still have this mortification, this killing still to do. I think John Davenant was helpful when he said, the dead are commanded still to mortify themselves because if they neglect the constant practice of mortification, vices that were trodden under and subdued recover their strength. Corruption that was broken off sprouts anew, and the grace of the Holy Spirit being stifled, the man returns to his former course. Unfortunately, that is the case in a fallen and sinful world. I don't know how many of you have had much experience with gardening or trying to keep dandelions out of your yard or whatever the case might be. You get out there one day, you pull all the weeds, you till the soil up, you get all those things dealt with, and a few days, week, two weeks later, what do you know? They are back again. And it's the same thing with, with our hearts, with this body of sin that we have to deal with here. If we fail to continually mortify our earthly members, they will spring up once again and harm us. And we need to understand in this, though, that this killing, this mortification is not a mere human effort, but it is a work which is to be done by the Spirit. And therefore, uh, Paul speaks of this in Romans 8.13, and he says, For if you are living according to the deeds of the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit, by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It's by the Spirit that these misdeeds are put to death. And so our fight against sin, then, is one that is carried on in the power of the Spirit, in dependence upon the Spirit, but at the same time, our dependence upon the Spirit does not excuse us from personally striving against these sins so as to put them to death. We strive, we fight, we kill, and we use means to do that, but we do it by the Spirit. We do it in the Spirit's power. In a way, we fight this battle and go out to kill in the same way that David went out to kill Goliath. Just think back to his words in 1 Samuel 17. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. The Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. That was the way in which David went out to fight. And we know that he used means, right? He went to the brook, gathered the stones, had the sling in his hand, and he went out to fight the giant. But he was doing so in the name of the Lord of hosts, in confidence that the Lord was going to do the delivering of Goliath into his hands. This is the way that we are to go out and to obey this command of verse 5 to mortify the members of our earthly body. We fight, we kill, and who is the enemy? What specific forms does the enemy take? Well, certainly verse 5 is not an exhaustive list, but it gives us a place to begin in terms of identifying the enemy. And so first he mentions immorality or uh, fornication. Now the word that's used here can be understood in the the narrow sense of referring to sexual intercourse between two unmarried persons, though it often is used in in a broader sense, which covers all forbidden sexual unions. 
Now, it may be that here the narrow sense is in view since the second thing that he mentions here immediately following is impurity. And I think impurity here seems to be that blanket term that prohibits all sexual sins, adultery, incest, homosexuality, etc. The sexual standards of the ancient Greco-Roman world were very permissive and unfortunately our culture is making an approach to those ancient permissive standards. But Paul is clear here and elsewhere that sexual immorality of all kinds is out of line for Christians. As he says in the parallel passage in Ephesians 5.3, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And he goes on uh, both there in Ephesians 5 and here in Colossians 3 to speak of the wrath of God that comes upon the sons of disobedience because of these sins and other sins as well. As Christians, we must mortify sexual immorality of any and all types. Part of the way to do that is to be careful about what we watch, what we listen to, uh, things that we talk about, the things that we are willing to listen to others talk about in our presence. We have to be careful and mindful of these things. Now Paul goes on to speak next of passion as this next earthly member which must be mortified. The word was translated in the King James as inordinate affection. And sometimes this passion or inordinate affection has been referred to as the the internal motions or as the, the first motions of sin. It's been said to refer to the disposition of mind whereby anyone is fitted and ready for the sin of lust when any occasion is offered. And so it's, it kind of has to do with this, this disposition with, within our hearts that is almost like worked up and ready to pounce on anything illicit that comes to our minds or our thoughts. It's this internal tendency of our heart and mind to get stirred up. And thus, it's not only external actions, but also internal tendencies, which must be mortified and killed. And fourthly, right after this, he mentions evil desires. King James, again, translates it as evil concupiscence. Not only may our actions and internal tendencies be sinful, but also our desires may be sinful as well. And we're not permitted to indulge in sinful desires, because the desiring for something that is a sin... That desire itself is a sin. We're not permitted to cherish these desires or to coddle them. Instead, we're required to kill them. And therefore, I think this verse is particularly uh, relevant today in regard to uh, some discussions uh, that have been going on for a few years in the evangelical world in regard to same-sex attraction. Sometimes we may hear uh, people saying things like homosexuality is a sin, but same-sex attraction is not a sin. Now, some who say those things may be well-meaning, but in saying that, they are misguided because it is wrong to say such a thing because same-sex attraction is an attraction toward a homosexual relationship, which is wrong, and therefore the desire for it or the attraction toward it is also wrong, is also sinful. Therefore, the, the desire, the attraction must be killed and not not coddled in any way. And I, and I say this in, in no way, seeking to, to beat up on those who, who struggle in this way. My intention is not to beat up on or belittle anyone. My intention is simply to be clear about what the Word of God says about 
evil desires, and also to give hope that by the aid of the Spirit, these things can indeed be mortified. There, there is hope that Christians can grow beyond these things, can indeed put these things to death and grow in holiness and walking with the Lord. And while that may be a particular hot-button issue to which uh, Paul's words here about evil desire is particularly relevant, there's, this is certainly much, much more broadly applicable than that. And so we shouldn't just stop at, okay, Paul says evil desire, that means same-sex attraction is a sin. Okay, moving on. It's applicable to all kinds of stuff. All of us struggle with evil desires. This applies to heterosexual sins. It applies to even non-sexual sinful desires. We're not allowed to desire anything that is sinful. Any desire to sin is itself a sinful desire, and that needs to be killed. I think that's, that's clear enough. And the fifth specific sin that Paul mentions there in verse 5 is the sin of covetousness. And when we hear those uh, words, our minds first go in the direction of understanding this as a prohibition of greed or of covetousness, specifically in regard to monetary wealth. And that is fully appropriate. This verse does clearly proscribe materialistic greed. Materialistic greed is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry, not because we literally set up bags of money on an altar and come in and offer a goat to these bags of money that are on the altar or bow down to worship or pray to the money, but it is idolatrous because when we are covetous, we're placing money in the supreme position such that it controls us and we, begins to, we begin to serve it. Jesus warned us about this, didn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve God and mammon, God and wealth. And money also takes hold of our affections, such that we may begin to love it. And the love of money, of course, is the root of all kinds of evil, as Paul warns us in 1 Timothy 6. And also then, money can become an object in which we trust. There's a certain proverbial truth in Ecclesiastes 10.19 where Solomon tells us that money is the answer for everything or that money answers all things. Now, years ago, I had a, a friend who was, who was preaching through uh, not, not entirely the book of Ecclesiastes from start to finish, but different portions of it. And I remember him mentioning chapter 10, verse 19, money is the answer for everything. He's like, Oh, I don't want to preach on that. And before we piously recoil at Solomon's words there, I think we need to understand his point, namely that money can take care of a lot of your problems here on earth. Obviously, there are some things that money can't buy, relationships, health, and so on. But when it th- comes to things like car repairs, home repairs, the need for new appliances, an unexpected hospital stay, a season in which you're unemployed, unexpected need to travel... Money can, and does, answer those things really well, right? It, it helps out a lot. For those of you who are my age and older, you may remember that old uh, ad campaign years ago that said, there are some things that money can't buy. For everything else, 
there's MasterCard. You may, you may remember that. And I think, I think that's kind of the point of what Solomon was going for there in Ecclesiastes 10.19. But our problem, though, is that we end up trusting money, trusting the means by which money can answer everything, rather than trusting God who supplies us with the means. And so we find that important instruction given in 1 Timothy 6.17, where Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world, not to be conceited, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us all things to enjoy. So we must never fix our hope or our trust upon riches, for as we find in Proverbs 23.5, riches may take wings and fly away. Our problem with regard to money is that it can begin to control us such that we serve it or again such that it takes a hold of our affections and we love it or we can see its effectiveness at dealing with the problems in life and then we can trust it and place our hope in it. It's no wonder here that Paul says covetousness is idolatry. And what is more, uh, this word that's translated as covetousness or greed has the sense of, of insatiableness, this continuous desire for more. And if we think back to the, the Ten Commandments, which we heard from, uh, from Deuteronomy 5 at the opening tonight, think, think of that list there in the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. There are several specific things on that list. And then, just in case you didn't get the point, he says, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Jesus tells us that there are more types of greed than one when he said in Luke 12, 15, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. It's not merely money that can become an idol due to covetousness. There are plenty of other potential idols that we can add to our pantheon in, in our covetous state. And so John Davenant rightly said, scarcely anyone is wholly free from this idolatry, for we all cleave unduly to the creature and thus incur some stain of idolatry. But we must withdraw the mind from them and return to the love and service of God. That's the answer, is to withdraw from these idols and to return to the love and service of God. Recognize that these things are, are creatures. These things are the things of earth. And they, uh, though money, anyways, can take care of some of, the, some of the earthly problems, it can't fix the big problem. It can't take care of our sins and our need for forgiveness and salvation. Only Christ can do that. And so Paul tells us here that we must kill these things, the immorality, the impurity, the passion, evil desire, and the covetousness, which is idolatry. And he goes on, verse 6, and tells us that it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. The judgment of God is coming upon sinful men who do these sinful things. The immoralities of various kinds that they commit, the passions of their heart which lead them to those actions, the evil desires which almost kind of lie behind those passions, and the insatiable covetousness of the heart that turn the heart from the creator to the creature, the wrath of God is coming 
on the sons of disobedience because of these things. Jesus, Jesus spoke very clearly in no uncertain terms about the judgment seat, the sheep, the goats, etc. The judgment of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And the temporal judgment of God may come to his own sons and daughters because of these things. If you've been with us in Sunday school, as we've been working through the life of David in 2 Samuel, we've seen this very thing being played out. The earthly judgment of God coming to David because of his sins. And then in verse 7, Paul points back to the, the past of these Colossians. He says, In them you also once walked, when you were living in them. Prior to conversion, this is what they and what all people had done. We, we walked in these ways. We lived in these ways. And this is the same kind of language that you see Paul using in Ephesians chapter 2 as he described them walking according to the course of the world, living in the lusts of the flesh and indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. But as Paul had made clear, these Christians had made a break with their past. They had been circumcised with the circumcision without hands, the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. They had been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And so Paul brings up the sordid past of these people, not to berate them with it or to drag them through the mud again, but I think more to remind them of a change that has taken place. They, once upon a time, in their past, lived and walked in these things. Not so anymore. They've died with Christ. They've been raised up with him. Now they are to apply this resurrection practically to their lives. They've died to sin and therefore must no longer walk in it and live in it. Rather, they must kill it and walk with Christ. And so it is with you and I as well. If we are in Christ, we have died to our sins. We are not who we once were, and therefore we must not live as we once did, but must, by a campaign of continual killing, put to death our members which are upon the earth. Get back to the garden, get the weeds out again and again and again. And obviously this means that we restrain our actions, right? Some of the things in that list in verse 5 are overt, outward actions that are clearly seen. Have to cut those off, have to kill it, restrain your actions. But there is more than that. We must also restrain our passions and our evil desires. External sinful actions flow, of course, from internal sinful hearts. And therefore Solomon says, Proverbs 4.23, to watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Again, this means we need to be careful about what comes in, what we meditate on, what we think upon, what we read, watch, listen to, talk about, and so on. The Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky said in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov, the awful thing is that beauty is mysterious as well as terrible. God and the devil are fighting there, and the battlefield is the heart of man. The heart is a battlefield. We have to watch over it, have to keep it weeded, have to keep it clean, and continually execute any sins that we find there, or else the sins that we may have thought we had mastered will return once again and seek mastery over us and wreak havoc in the meantime 
until, by the grace of God, we put them to death again. And so, Christian friends, even though we have this serious charge, we need to, we need to take heart that the way of life to which Christ has called us is, is better than the ways of the world, right? We look at that list of things there in verse 5, and there's other bad things coming later in the chapter. I hope that we all look at these things and we say, yes, I don't, I don't want any part of that. With, with new eyes open to the gospel of Christ, we should look at these things and say, yes, these things are horrible. God keep me from them. Those things result in death and discord and damnation. On the other hand, we find in Romans 6, 22 and 23, where Paul says that now, having been free from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The blessings which are ours in Christ are worth every ounce of the fight that we have to put into the battle against sin here on earth. And so may God strengthen us that by the Spirit we would put to death what remains of our members here upon the earth. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, impress upon us the truth and the beauty of your ways, that we would love them, and that we would recognize the evil, the destruction, the discord, the wickedness, the unhappiness of sin. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see through the facade, to see through the masks and the painting with which sin disguises itself. Help us to see through the lies of the devil and to see sin for what it is. Help us also to see your ways as they are, good and wonderful and right. We pray, Father, that you give us grace and strength that we put to death our sins so that we might walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.